You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Nick Correa. It's Thursday, April 23rd, 2020. We have Real Vision's Ed Harrison and Roger Hurst standing by to give their macro analysis. But before we go to them, let's take a quick look at the latest news and markets, starting with the coronavirus. As we can see here, we are still at steady levels in the daily confirmed case count globally, between 75 and 85,000 cases. Yet yesterday, the U.S. made a reporting adjustment, causing a jump in total recoveries and resulting in a first for negative net active cases. We have a while to go before establishing any new overall patterns or trends in the data, but of course, we will take the bits of good news as they come. However, our struggles are far from over. In other G20 countries, we can see that Brazil's case count is continuing to accelerate, as well as Canada's and India's curve sloping upward in a somewhat paralleled fashion. As of yesterday in Brazil, their confirmed case count landed them around 45,000, and their daily confirmed cases are trending upward, even as they are moving up in a staggered way. Many policymakers are relying heavily on forecasting models to create bills that will best respond to the various hurdles ahead. However, these models all vary in outcomes. They are constructed on assumptions about the disease that are uncertain and ever-changing as new information emerges which therein lies the difficulty of making fully informed decisions. Here we can see five different leading forecasts for the U.S. that go through the end of May, and they are all constructed based on current restrictions and stay-at-home orders we're seeing now sustained throughout that period. According to the New York Times, the model from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation is the one the White House administration has relied on and cited, and this model is constructed around the patterns other countries before the U.S. have experienced with the spread of the coronavirus. It doesn't depend as heavily on the information epidemiologists know about COVID-19. Other models such as those from Northeastern and Columbia are created based on what is known about the disease, such as its infectiousness, rate of recovery, and risk factors that could lead to more serious cases and death. Which model will be more accurate is more likely to be known in hindsight, and the uncertainty about the future will persist until we understand what is the most accurate trajectory. In other news, Mexican state-owned oil giant Pemex today made a stand, outright refusing physical delivery to an armada of American tankers, declaring a force majeure, or act of God, as the oil mega glut continues to send shockwaves around the world. Over 100 million barrels of oil continue to be stranded at sea with no relief in sight. Many oil and gas platforms in the Gulf of Mexico have been turned offline, with yellow dots representing decommissioned platforms and blue dots representing those scheduled to be dismantled. The commodity that Pemex refused to accept, interestingly enough, was not oil, but gasoline, showing that this unprecedented oil shock is already affecting other commodities down the supply chain. Meanwhile, the Brazilian real continues to depreciate against the dollar today, and the futures curve is pricing in at least 100 basis point cut for the year. This is very bad for Brazil, which owes over 600 billion in dollar-denominated debt. Just coming through the wire, interest rate futures have spiked, as Brazilian Justice Minister Sergio Moro has threatened to resign just a few minutes ago, the longer end of the curve particularly affected. 
And lastly, Gilead, the biotech company that sent markets soaring a mere week ago on hopes of an effective coronavirus treatment, dropped sharply today, as a report by the Financial Times indicates that early-stage trials appear to show no major benefit from patients taking remdesivir. The company has rejected the report and has noted that the results were inconclusive. Regardless, markets fell almost instantly, erasing all daily gains at one point and, as of this writing, are up marginally on the day. The only positive aspect of this story is that markets still have the ability to act rationally. After rallying on horrific initial jobless claims early this morning, the Gilead report brought it back down to reality. This is the new normal in markets that are dominated by fear and hope. Now let's go to Ed and Roger for their analysis. Ed? Thanks, Nick. Uh, it is Thursday, the 23rd of April. I am here in D.C. or the D.C. area, and I'm talking to Roger Hurst, our man and gene editor over in the U.K. Roger, how are you doing? Good afternoon. Yeah, very well. Thanks. Yourself? Good, good. So yeah. we're we're doing this at the uh, the close of the European close, and uh, as 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 we were talking about this a little bit, you know, um, there's not a huge amount of news flow in terms of the markets after the whole oil breakdown. What are you looking at in terms of the markets right now? Uh, I'm really focused on the um, really currencies and emerging markets, and particularly those things which I would think are relatively free floating. And we talked about this on other um, other episodes, but. Comparing things like the U.S. equity and uh, corporate bond markets, which are clearly distorted by central bank activity, versus those assets where we can relatively freely express ourselves and a view on the global macro. And I think those opportunities exist in the FX markets and in certain EM markets, particularly EM bonds. You know, uh, I saw, I think it was last week, that Russia, they uh, were able to get away with a 100-point a, um, uh, cut in their, their rates. And just recently, Brazil is doing the same thing. They're cutting their interest rates. But, you know, the Brazilian uh, real is not doing well at all. I mean, how is that going to play out in terms of exactly what you're talking about? You can see that the currencies that have been moving have been those general sort of relatively weak currencies anyway. There was obviously the dogs of the last couple of years, obviously like Argentina and the Turkish um, lira as well. Um, but you can add to that, they're nearly all the commodity currencies um, emerging of uh, the emerging markets, but also the commodity currencies of developed markets such as Australia and Canada as well. And I think this is where you're going to see it. These are, again, we talked about cash flows, but effectively these country cash flows are going to dwindle, trickle down to a trickle. And therefore, they, the, the currencies should weaken on the back of that. Because we're always fixated on the dollar index. But the dollar index is primarily the euro at 57%, and then the yen and the British pound. So it's a very, very narrow expression of the dollar. Um, I've generally been looking at the JP Morgan EMFX index, and that has been grinding around the all-time lows um, over the last few weeks. And I think I think it's something that Peter Brand discussed with Raoul. But he said, look, what you want to play here are those currencies that have already broken down and have momentum on your side, that's dollar strength on your side. And you can see that in Mexico, in the uh, South African Rand, uh, in the Brazilian rail, to name but three. And I think that continues. I think this is where we see the global weakness is going to be um, kind of exemplified, is in these sorts of currencies. And, you know, also, those are places where COVID-19 hasn't really broken out quite to the degree that it has in developed markets. I know I've heard in those three countries you've talked about some cases, but uh, Elsewhere in the in the emerging markets, it hasn't been as uh, much of a problem. So you have two uh, sort of a double whammy, two things hitting at the same time. What does it mean for sovereign and for non-sovereign debtors? There, do you think? 
Well, I think it's for both. I mean, corporate corporate debt everywhere, I think, is under pressure. And the key thing here is obviously that you know the central banks of the developed markets, but particularly Europe, the US and Japan, are intervening and will, will continue to intervene. It's very hard for the banks of the emerging markets to intervene because of the impact it's going to have on the currency anyway. So they're kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place is that what you want is your currency to decline, but not so rapidly that it creates rampant inflation. So you, you're stuck with those things. And I think Ultimately, they have to let them decline because that's the natural outlet. This is the, the safety valve. What I've talked about before is that in some ways, the more that the U.S. does, the more people are attracted to the U.S. to hide their money. So the more the U.S. provides this liquidity, actually, the dollar isn't going down. It's been grinding around um, these sort of levels when you look at it in the broader indices. But if you pick out one or two of the currencies and those currencies which have that commodity headwind now, as it would be. That's just, I think, a much safer way of playing the macro than maybe being short the S&P, where you're battling against the Fed as well, even though I do think we're in a rebound phase. But you don't have that when you're playing the emerging market currencies. You know, actually, I think uh, Scott Minard of Guggenheim, he was saying pretty much the same thing you were saying. I was, I'm looking at a tweet that he had from April the 13th, and he's saying that rich countries can drop helicopter money with relatively little consequence, but emerging market monetary and fiscal uh, solutions will further weaken their currencies, making access to dollars even harder. So, I mean, you know, a lot of uh, smart investors are understanding that that's the case. and But at the same time, you know, you're between a rock and a hard place if you want to provide some level of stimulus if you're in the emerging market. So as you're saying, it's like you have to to weigh, to weigh the balance between the, the two. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you know, when they say you can drop helicopter money without too much consequence in developed markets, I think it's a, it's a pretty big to differ on that one. But as a first stop measure, yes, clearly that's the case. And maybe you know, one of the ones to look at here is the UK. I've talked about this with regard to post-Brexit, where the UK said, we're going to do lots of fiscal. That was before COVID came along. They're going to do more fiscal. So maybe um, looking at the UK as one of the places where sterling should come under pressure from this, because the UK will do it. It's a freely floating currency, um, but it's not a reserve currency. So it doesn't have that safety net that the dollar has. So if you want to play a developed market currency from the short side, maybe the UK is the one to look at. You know, when you talk about uh, that, okay, it's not all good. You can, you can drop helicopter money without consequence, or there are going to be consequences. I'm thinking about it from the... Uh, the bond perspective, because, you know, right before this call, we were talking about this. I was looking at a lot of different bond scenarios. In particular, we talked about CLOs because there was a, a piece, I think it was in the FT. Let me look at it here. That came out six hours ago saying that the ratings agencies are going, they've placed uh, more than a thousand slices of debt backed by leveraged loans on review for downgrades. These are the CLOs. They're talking about the the, the bad tranches of the CLOs. And the sense that I get is that, uh, you know, there's going to be some pain there. But at the same time, I think that, you know, you could have a situation where it's a baby with the bathwater type of situation where, you know, if you're a, a good investor, if you're, you really know what you're doing, then you can get in there and you can take a look at the credit and you can pick up some things that, that look good after these downgrades come through. So I, I think that, you know, we talked to Dan Zwarn, who is a distressed investor, and he says that, okay, so the, the Fed is all in, the ECB is now buying junk as well. Why don't, uh, you know, let's look at distress. I'm a distressed investor. I think that there's, there's going to be some opportunity there when bad things happen. Uh, you know, not everything is going to go to zero. 
it's something which uh, Dylan Grice has been on the platform also talking about as well, which is that you know these things sold off, and although they have rebounded a little bit, they've not rebounded half as much as we've seen in obviously the investment grade in certain parts of the high yield space. Um, so you still got these really distressed opportunities there. And he did say, look, you know, if you're going to do this, you need to have an expert on your side. Go and find someone who knows what they're doing. Firstly, do your own homework. Check out the CLO market. Work out that you're comfortable with it. And if you are comfortable with the fact that there's distressed opportunities here, then go and find someone who is going to be, you know, who can actually do the work for you. But I think this is the interesting thing is something that Dylan's been um, highlighting quite a bit, which is, you know, in these environments, often the best way to play it is actually to try and pick up the distressed assets rather than to chase the distressed assets down, which, you know, if selling equities in this environment, being short equities, if you weren't short in early February, it's going to be a hell of a game. And something Raoul mentioned, but his own experience of 2000 to 2003, is that actually the market spent more time rallying than selling off, even though overall it had a 50% decline from peak to trough. So that's that's the kind of environment that's that makes the short selling so incredibly hard, um, but at the same time gives some fantastic opportunities for things which have been absolutely beaten down to buggery already. You know, we talked about that, uh, this uh, retracement uh, a week ago. Uh, that is, you know, the 50% retracement. I think we were even talking about, you know, the potential for 62%. So we've gotten to 50%. We had back-to-back -back, uh, negative days on Monday and Tuesday. But since then, the market has stabilized. It's rallying a decent amount. I mean, what do you think about the the equity markets in the U.S. in particular, how, uh, you know, where where that's headed over the longer term? So my base case has to be with what I've been saying, which is I think this is still a common or garden equity bounce. It should hit 62%. I think more than, I think of all the big ones that I looked at, I think 40% of, of the big sell-offs that I looked at, ranging from Japan, some of the biggest sell-offs in, in US, even going back to 1929, something like 40% hit a 62% retracement. And the majority of the rest got to 50%. And we're in between the two at the moment. I think it's something like 29.30 on the S&P. So my base case is still that we are carving out a rebound. But now this is sort of so well known that we could overshoot. Absolutely, we could. But that's still my base case. But I, I will still maintain the view that the Fed may be bigger than I think it is, and it may have more influence than I think I would have expected that they can, and that they may therefore influence the US relative to these other assets, which I think are much more freely floating. So I would look at the S&P to roll over. But it's to kind of unwind portfolios into um, rather than take a brand new short position, because that, that's just a lot of there's a lot of risk in that. And I think that's uh, that's such a hard trade to hold. Um, and my preference overall, though, is to go to these other countries where I think there are simpler opportunities where you're not fighting against what is a, a tsunami of liquidity at the moment. You know, when you talk about other uh, countries, the first thing that comes to mind is Argentina. I was talking to that about uh, with um, with Ash uh, two days ago. The fact that uh, they were considering whether they were going to default, uh, you know, miss a payment, and actually they did miss their payment, uh, five hundred million dollars. And it seems like they are just playing a game of chicken, you know, because they have a, a number of days to make good on the payment. Uh, the question really is, uh, is, is it a canary in the coal mine? Does it have any significance whatsoever for all these other countries that you're looking at? 
I think so. And something that goes back to 2008, and I remember back then, you'd see something happen in a country and everyone goes, oh, that was an idiosyncratic story. And you'd have an idiosyncratic story. The crisis in Iceland wasn't like the crisis in, let's say, Ireland. And the crisis that we saw for Northern Rock wasn't quite like the crisis that we saw in certain parts of the US capital structure. And some of these started in 2006, and Northern Rock began its bank run, I think, a year before we actually saw the blow up of Lehman. And all these were idiosyncratic, except they weren't. Actually, when you get five, six, seven, eight idiosyncratic stories, you actually then realize that they're all the same thing, which was either leverage or funding or whatever they were. And I think we're going to see the same today, which is there's got to be so much stress out there. And, you know, look at the data that we got out today. We all know the data is going to be terrible. But even so, to see the French PMI for services down at 10.4, when it was expected to be in the 20s, right. it's, still, it's still kind of like, oh, my God, you know, that that's still these are incredible numbers. Uh, and so when you look at that, and this is this is what's so hard, I think, for all of us to really get our heads around is that this is clearly a much deeper decline than any of us have ever experienced before. And it's faster than any of us have ever experienced before. But I think because it's been so fast, it's allowed the response to be faster than every, anything we've seen before, which is why I'm a little bit uncertain about the outcome, because in 2008, it was two years in the making which central bankers failed to do anything until the whole sell-off was effectively embedded in the market itself, whereas this one came out of nowhere. But what we said at the very beginning of this episode, which is that the central banks of Europe, the US, Japan can do something about it. The central banks of most emerging markets can't. If they're reliant on commodities, then that's an extra problem for them. And you know what was interesting on Mondays with oil selling off at one point, COP was down 6.5% as well. It's recovered most of that now. But I still think there's more to go in things like copper. And that's where you can see this becoming a domino effect around these economies. And then the, worst, the one thing that does kind of worry me slightly left field, but you know, if you have a very low oil price for an extended period of time, what are the ways that you can try and get an oil price back up? Well, it's a bit of saber rattling, and I don't really want that to happen, but that could be where we go with this. But I think this is the problem. It's emerging markets overall. They were reliant on that globalized system in which there was demand for their commodities and finished goods. Well, that's on hold. And the world we go back to afterwards may be one that's completely different. And it's not going to benefit the globalization that was the of which the emerging markets were the beneficiaries. You know, and you mentioned uh, commodities. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at uh, this um, uh, exchange-traded fund called BNO right now. And the reason I'm looking at it, this is a Brent oil fund, uh, the United States Brent oil fund. A friend of mine, literally right before we came on, was texting me. Uh, I went to business school with her, and she was saying that this was her stock. Now, she's a, 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 um, a business school graduate and so forth, but she's not a, a sophisticated institutional investor. And uh, to me, uh, you know, this is the second time that I've, I've, I've run across someone. Uh, two days ago, my sister was telling me about a friend of hers who wanted to get into USO, which is another exchange-traded fund for oil. Uh, second time I've, I've run across people who I know directly who are telling me they're speculating in oil right now. I mean, to me, that speaks not to more upside uh, over the long term. It speaks to maybe a spike up as these people speculate in. But, you know, it, it gives you weak hands uh, on, the, on the downside. I mean, what are you what are your thoughts about this this retail rush? 
Well, it's kind of one of those things where I look at it and go, either they're very clever or they're very stupid, because apparently 100,000 people on the Robinhood platform have bought into USO since Monday. Now, does that mean that they bought into the lows and they've captured the spike, or did they get hammered by the Tuesday turnaround? Which Because Tuesday was the really big day on oil, because Monday was the expiry day, and it's an expiry story, whereas Tuesday was an, oh, my God, it's actually everywhere story. Um, and so I'm not sure. I mean, it's you know, you don't want retail rushing in um, to any of these products because they're not built um, in an efficient way in a volatile market, as everyone probably watching this understands that these are futures based and therefore the role is a, as a cost um, on holding these positions when that curve is upward sloping and against you on a long position. So you're always rolling up and up and up. But if they're holding this for just two or three days bounce, and actually, they may have done quite well. I think the other thing is, as well, I mean, I'm spending more time looking at Brent, actually, than I am at um, WTI, because WTI had obviously that, that specific story around expiry, whereas Brent, although it's exchanged for physical as well, you do have an option, I believe, on cash settling those futures. Right, yes. So there's not quite the same, there's not going to be quite the same unusual expiry pressure that we got with WTI. But nonetheless, the point that I made on about Tuesday's action is that it went from being an expiry story to a... There's a hell of a lot of oil out there and very little demand story because the real economy is still screwed. And that's still the case. And oil a little bit now is sort of bouncing because other assets are bouncing. But the real economy has not changed in two days. What we saw is a massive, massive sell-off. As with the S&P, you get a rebound. But I think we broke through the big levels so that the pressure is still towards the downside. And this is despite OPEC plus telling us that they're going to try and manipulate the price higher. Well, they failed and they're the main organization to do this. So that tells you just how stark this imbalance between demand and supply really is. Actually. Yeah, and you know, the, the numbers that we're talking about are 22 uh, for Brent, a 22 handle dollar handle. Uh, you know, most companies are going to go bankrupt in uh, the shale sector if Brent and WTI still are trading at these levels. So these aren't good levels. They're a bounce from catastrophic levels, but they're still not good. No, and, and then you look at things like these um, very large um, crude containers where their prices have gone through the roof as well. And you look at that, I think, I think you were telling me that they're $180,000 a day now. For right, these. yeah. And if you think about that, they hold 2 million, um, they hold 2 million barrels, apparently. Now, the one-year contango is, is, I think, we're around about, um, I think it's about $16. So you think about 2 million barrels, $16, that's not including the costs. That's, that's still underwater if you put it in a tanker at 180 grand a day by a considerable margin. So that option is basically one just to reduce the costs or the losses that you're going to make by storing it offshore. But it's not, it's not a viable trade, really, for, for those people to do. Right. You know, I want to go back to this whole thing of uh, speculation and uh, retail for a second, because right before we came on, just after I was talking to my friend from business school, I saw this uh, this uh, Wall Street Journal article and it was saying individual investors find withdrawal windows shut for property funds. And the, the gist of it is, is, is that there's an inability to cash out in non-traded REITs uh, and that it couldn't come at a worse time for uh, small investors. These people, they, they piled into these investments. We're talking about commercial real estate. We're talking about investments that are uh, for shopping malls, things of that sort. These are the places that are getting hammered. So these guys want to pull their money out. Uh, you, 
honestly, my the my general take is 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 that. Uh, these are these are the sort of pressures that are building up underneath the liquidity that's being provided by the Fed, and that uh, when the real economy that you were talking about uh, starts to uh, to percolate through, and people see this, when you get the defaults that uh, Moody's and S and P and Fitch are talking about. Uh, then I think you're going to see another uh, downdraft in the market. I mean, that's my personal view. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on how, how all this interconnects? I mean, that's, I think that has to be the way. It goes back to the cold concentration argument, which is that you know, the, the online retailers and the big online re retailers that had warehouses in which you could do, do social distancing, because in the UK, there's a couple of online retailers that failed miserably because they weren't able to do social distancing. So those that have, have taken a lion's share of the market. When things reopen, they are not probably going to give back all of that. In fact, they're probably going to give back only a small amount of that. And we always knew this sort of slow death, death by a thousand cuts for the uh, mix, the bricks and mortar retail. But when we come out of this, they're not coming back either. And this is the reality. This is this is that kind of the real economy situation where you know, can the Fed just continue to fund this, or can it's actually the central banks, the central banks, the governments? Can the governments just fund this ad infinitum, or do they have to accept that there is going to be some form of breakdown, attrition, loss in the economy? And we're just going to have to accept that. At the moment, it seems that we are still collectively hoping for, I don't like these phrases, Vs, et cetera, but a quick recovery back to normality, a normality that existed prior to middle of February. And I just don't think that can happen because not just a framework of how business is done, but the framework of how we invest money, I think, has been fundamentally changed particularly with the things like the buybacks that have gone, particularly dividends in the UK as well. And because of these things, I just don't think that there is any support in the way that we had it before. And so markets remain vulnerable outside of what is ultimately central bank pumping the market. There isn't the, there isn't the actual follow-through effect of corporate buybacks to come. And I do think 401k pension funds will have smaller flows into this. So at the margin, everything will be worse on the other side of this. Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, I... I I think uh, I'd like to even leave it right there. You know, before we'd always talked about leaving it on a positive note, but I want to leave it on a real note in the sense that I mean, with uh, with all of the the the, uh, the rally that we're getting in oil in shares today, the reality is is that we don't have a lot of visibility going forward. That there's still a lot of uh, a potential uh, negativity to come, and it's not necessarily priced into to the markets. I think that uh, people have to understand that a rebalancing uh, may be may be in order. Yeah, and look, you know, you've got to have a rebalancing at the end of April, for instance. We're talking technically here because we've had a massive equity rally, but not much moving bonds. So equity should actually be a little bit, little bit of a sell into this month end. But the reality of this is that that you know, we're if you look at the U.S., you think, wow, it's pretty impressive. But if you look everywhere else, it's nowhere near as impressive. We've had rebounds, but they're not generally as good as they've been in the U.S., certainly nothing anywhere near what we've seen on the NASDAQ. The real world out there, beyond just the U.S. equity market, is showing us that there is a lot of pain. And I think there's other ways of playing this. Now, distressed assets you can buy, certain currencies you can sell versus the dollar in the first place. And I think certain emerging markets, as we've discussed, will be under a lot of pressure. I think it's you know, we all have a fixation with the S&P. We almost all want to manically get the S&P completely right. 
but it's going to be one of the hardest calls to get right because of the not direct manipulation, but the insinuated manipulation that if it even does sell off, they will come in and buy it, even though that's theoretically illegal. So I just think that the great way to play this is outside of some of these U.S. assets, go outside the borders, look for those opportunities. And unfortunately, there are going to be weak spots in the global economy, and they're going to be weak spots for an extended period of time, because we all know that this is going to be an extended lockdown. You know, uh, I was going to leave it there, but you the, the one word, you said one word that I have to uh, hone in on, and that is theoretically illegal, that term. You know, it's, it's supposed to be illegal, but I, to be honest with you, I hear lots of talk from lots of different places that you could get an SPV, special purpose vehicle, and, you know, if things go south, the Fed could ostensibly get into um, equity ETFs. Do you give that any credence? Yeah, I do, because in Europe, it was exactly that when it came to what do we do to bail out Europe, whatever it takes. Well, you know, the number of the number of fudges in terms of, you know, from the European Court of Justice as well, where it's like, well, you know, that's that's sort of OK, but we'll leave it to them to decide. And the people who decide are actually the, the, the banks or the, the, you know, the European Central Bank or whatever. The point is that everybody will fudge the rules, the laws, et cetera, if it seemed to be in the concept of the greater interest. We can argue what that is. But the reality is that if things are in a free fall, they will do whatever it takes. Now, my view on that is that ultimately they will be swamped because of the magnitude of this, but they will try whatever it takes, which is helicopter money, the MMT stories, handing it out, whatever it takes, they will give it a go. And if that means fudging the rule book, they'll do it. Okay, well, we'll leave it on that then, Roger. It's been great talking to you and uh, look forward to it again. Absolutely. Catch you later. Cheers. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.